Welcome to episode three of season two, 13th episode overall of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm serial entrepreneur Jeffrey M. Zucker, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features Heidi Drawshack. Heidi is bridging the gap between technology and policy as the co-founder of CrowdLobby. She is a government and policy consultant with experience on the campaign trail, at the White House, and in lobbying. She holds a JD and MBA and travels the country in an RV with her husband, two dogs, and a cat. Heidi and I had a great talk about playing the policy game while trying to change it, crowdfunding change, RV life, and more. Here is Heidi Drawshack on People Are the Answer. Heidi, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. Glad to have you and was hoping you could start out by just telling us who you are. Um, I know usually I ask where is someone based and that answer is a little bit different for you and uh, what your current role is. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Heidi Drashak. Uh, to your point, I live in an RV. So I am uh, spent the last couple of years in Virginia. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, uh, but I'm currently living in a 40-foot RV and traveling the country, so been kind of all over the place for the last year. And my current role, uh, so I hold two side-by-side -side roles. The first is I'm uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of CrowdLobby, um, which is a crowdsourced lobbying platform. The idea is to bring a bunch of people together and hire a lobbyist on behalf of that group. And then I am also a managing partner at Antrim Gray Solutions, which is a boutique uh, management political consulting firm that works primarily with social and political clients. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So you mentioned growing up in Pennsylvania, um, you know, where in Pennsylvania what, and what was that like? Um, so I grew up about 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. I in a town called Downingtown and it's pretty you know, I had a very fortunate upbringing. Um, we lived in probably your most quintessential suburban America. Um, I did like growing up in Pennsylvania. It's kind of a very interesting state. It's politically very interesting. It's obviously got a ton of history. Um, you know, Philadelphia is probably one, well, I gotta be careful what I say here, but it's like one of the most historical cities in the US. Um, so really interesting place to grow up. I also liked being in the Northeast. Um, and so, yeah, it was, a, I, like I said, I had a very fortunate upbringing. Um, and although I've spent the last decade or so outside of Pennsylvania, I'm always very fond of going back. It's always good to hear when people like where they grew up. Um, certainly not always the case. And <laughs> so grow, you went to Pennsylvania or you grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, then where did you go to the college? Um, so I left Pennsylvania and I went to Washington, D.C. I went to American University. Um, for those that aren't familiar, that's actually the name. It's called American University. Some people are always like, OK, you went to an American university. What's the name of it? Um, but it's actually called AU, American University. Um, and it's in the district, which was really cool. Uh, it was a really neat experience. Um, I'll admit it wasn't my top choice, but after going, I think it was perfect for me because it was right in the seat of power and I was already interested in politics and government. And yeah, anybody who's gone to school in DC just knows the opportunity is unparalleled because you're right there. 
And um, so it was a really cool experience. And I got to do some really cool things while I was in school. And I know that after school, you, you at some point you went to law school. Was, was there time in between or did you jump straight there? Uh, yeah, so I took a year off. So um, my, my mom at the time, um, so my mom is a German immigrant. And so she came to this country when she was 30. And she's very funny because she didn't quite understand how college in this country works. Uh, because as you can probably guess, the our kind of, it's obviously not the same for everyone, but our kind of like go off for four years and party and just have a good time is not paralleled pretty much anywhere else in the world. And so my mom basically made an agreement with me in the beginning of school where she was like, look, if you graduate early, I will like help you take a year off after school because I want you to like go in and study and really like get the most out of college rather than just partying. Um, so I got really lucky there. And so I graduated in two and a half years and then basically took a year, year and a half off before I went to law school. And I spent part of it on uh, the congressional campaign trail. So I worked the, I guess, 2014 congressional races. Um, so that was really neat. I was working up in New York, kind of got a taste for campaigning. Uh, I'll be completely honest, I hated it, but it was a good experience. And then I spent about six to eight months traveling. So I went to India, I went all over the US, I went to South America um, and really kind of uh, dipped my toes into some serious travel, which was a really cool and uh, really, I think, important experience for me before I went to law school. Well, that's awesome that you got that opportunity to travel and um how was law school? And I'm also curious, you know, what drew you to public policy in the first place? Um, sure. So I'll take them one at a time. Uh, law school was horrible. Uh, you'd be hard pressed, I think, to find a person who enjoyed law school. Um, that said, I mean, I, I say that somewhat jokingly. There were great parts. I met amazing people. I think a lot of people who go to graduate school kind of probably have a similar experience. It's just, it's really difficult. It's very time consuming. Um, I also think a lot of people go into the legal field kind of having this, you know, courtroom seeker of justice attitude. And so I think a lot of people go into it because they really want to make a difference and they want to make a change. And, you know, they think that that's kind of the role. And then you get there and you realize that like 90% of legal work is like corporate and transactional and kind of much drier than the, you know, justice seekers that we were kind of sold on. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, it was a little bit disillusioned. I, I was a little disillusioned. I got to law school and suddenly woke up and was like, I don't want to do this. Um, not to mention that I was having a hard time finding a single lawyer that really loved their jobs. Um, so it was hard to find somebody and say like, that's who I want to be in a decade. Um, so spoiler alert, I did not, I'm not a practicing lawyer. I did graduate and I, you know, uh, have my law degree, but I decided not to practice for those reasons. Um, and that kind of dovetails into the second question, which is why public policy? So I already had a background of public policy before I went to law school. Uh, I have been interested in government since I can remember. It was funny. I was actually thinking before this podcast, I was like, when did my interest in government originate? Um, but I, I was interested in, I went to school, my, my college degree is in political science. And so I was steeped in it during college. 
Then obviously, like I said, I went on the campaign trail and I, there's kind of two bodies of politics. There's politics and that's like the campaigning. And I think honestly, all the parts that people hate. And then there's public policy, which is like legislating and the laws and actually creating, you know, the meat and potatoes that affect everyday Americans. And so I realized I hated the first part. I hated the political side, but the public policy was always like the thing that really excited me. Um, so yeah, so I kind of, like I said, I, I went to law school almost because I thought it was the natural continuation of my interest in public policy and then kind of had an uh-oh moment and was like, this isn't it. Um, so now, you know, I always like to say, I use my law degree to be, be better at public policy, uh, but I kind of had to like go a different direction after law school. So it's been kind of a lifelong journey, but yeah, I definitely realized that I'm interested in government, not necessarily politics. Yeah, that that's a good understanding to get. And I mean, I know a lot of people that have gone to law school and don't necessarily practice. It still seems like something that's been very beneficial and can be in a lot of different areas, um, especially when you're working in public policy and obviously people that are in business that have law degrees, it can be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no then, doubt. I always tell people like being a lawyer or being legally trained helps you in pretty much every other industry. You just don't actually want to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. And and you mentioned that, you know, most of the stuff people hate is more on the, the politics side versus the kind of government side. Uh, cynically, I would argue that there's a lot to hate on both sides, having tried to change some laws, you know, and been involved in that and the sort of schmoozing and everything that needs to go on on the on that side in order to get things done uh, certainly can be frustrating i'm wondering wondering if you've had similar experiences oh yeah absolutely i mean i think that's also it's easy to kind of say like oh there's two different sides the truth is much messier and it's much more linked um you know so of course public policy is affected by politics and politics are constantly affecting public policy so you know, yes, I, to your point, I love to kind of, it, it's really nice to say like, oh, there's two and I just focus on the one, but it'd be naive to say that. I mean, they're definitely intertwined. And even if I like the public policy part, I can't ignore the politics part because it's part of the same game. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny working in this space. Some days I think I see the better sides of government than like an everyday citizen because I meet the legislators and I'm seeing these people who are really trying to affect change. And you know, there's a lot of really good people in government. There's a lot of people who are like really trying to do the right thing. But then there's other days where I'm like, I also see probably worse sides than everyday people. And so there's some things where you're like, you, you know, you see it and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Like this can't possibly be how we do things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I it's it's a I have a very love hate relationship with the American government. Sometimes, um, I you know think it's one of the most incredible things that humans have ever done. And I always say like, the U.S. government is probably the largest company if you like frame it as far as like employees and money and everything else. It's probably the largest company that's ever existed in the history of humanity. Um, but it can be an extremely messy process. And there is, you know, there's so much personal interest and private interests and influence and all these things that make it extremely, yeah, messy. So um, can't even remember your original 
question, but yes, it's definitely, I think it was something to the effect of like, do I see the messy parts? And yes, I mean, it, it's, you can't pull it out. And again, sometimes you just recognize that it's part of the system, but sometimes it still makes you want to like go hide under a rock. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way of putting it. And um, I'd love to learn more about what you were up to before your current roles. Um, yeah, so it all kind of like bled together. Um, I actually started Crowd Lobby while I was in law school for exactly these reasons. So I was trying to figure out, you know, what part of government do I want to get involved with? And I was, I worked at the attorney general's office. I worked in the federal government. I worked in state government. I tried lobbying. And I think, you know, and, and I don't want to dive too much into Crowd Lobby because that's not your question, but, um, yeah, I basically just realized like there's still so much space. Like, again, government is one of those weird industries where it affects everything, but it's often way behind the ball when it comes to innovation and trying new things and democratizing the system. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of just like in law school and I was thinking like, I'm just going to try this. And so that's how CrowdLobby came about. And then in full transparency, Antrim Grace basically came about because we realized Crowd Lobby was not going to be a full-time job right off the bat. And so we just thought like, you know, what are we going to, what are we going to do to pay the bills? And now fortunately it's turned into really like a beautiful company that I'm very proud of and I enjoy working on. Um, but yeah, they both kind of came, they like, it came right out of law school into both of them. And then obviously what they look like today is very different than when I graduated law school. Um, but they, kind of happened like naturally out of of that experience got it that makes a lot of sense it's it's nice to see when things sort of happen naturally and um to give some context to the listeners you know you and i met via my friend evan nissen who was actually on episode seven of this podcast and uh evan had long talked to me about sort of just the general concept of crowd lobbying and what that could entail. And I always thought it was fascinating. And, you know, my, I'm very curious to dig into your perspective and what you've done, but my perspective at the time was in talking to Evan was there's so much lobbying going on. It affects so much of our policy and the only people for, for lack of a better term that can afford lobbying are these huge corporations for the most part. And therefore oftentimes the interests of the general public aren't represented. Um, and this, you know, was an opportunity to represent public interest, but with this concept and, you know, it was on Evan's back burner for a long time. And then, you know, COVID time is such a mess. I don't remember what it was, but sometime within the last year, year and a half, uh, Evan mentioned that he ran into your website and reached out to you guys. And, you know, we started a conversation there. Um, so tell us kind of more about Crowd Lobby and how it got going and where it is now. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, the idea is pretty straightforward. We basically just said how, to your point, lobbying is unbelievably powerful in this country. Um, that's on the federal level, but also on the state and the local level, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, you could probably have a you know 15 hour conversation about why and is that a good thing um but over and over again our courts and our legal systems and everything else have basically said that lobbying is a uh part of free speech and again it's basically just having someone advocate on your behalf 
The problem, of course, is to your point, the way the system developed, the lobbyists that do exist in this country are so expensive that it's basically cost prohibitive for anyone that isn't a super wealthy person or a corporation that can spend millions of dollars on a lobbyist. Um, so I was involved in this system and I was watching it from the inside for the first time. And I was thinking, again, like if I could snap my fingers and get rid of it, great, I would do it. But realistically, that's probably never going to happen. And so then the question, then the next question becomes, okay, if you can't get rid of it, how do you equalize? How do you democratize it and like maybe spread out access to it? And again, the biggest problem is the price tag. It's not that lobbyists aren't willing to work with people. Most of the lobbyists that I know would love to work for the American people rather than like pharmaceutical companies, but the American people aren't paying the bills. And so then we just took the crowdfunded model and we said, okay, just like a Kickstarter, just like a GoFundMe, what if you could get, you know, a thousand people who care about a specific issue, bring them together, everybody gives $10. And now all of a sudden you have enough money to go hire a lobbyist. Um, so that was basically the idea. And to your point, Evan had had the same idea years earlier than me, actually. Um, but then funny how it works out. I had just gotten everything up and running a little bit faster. And so he reached out and was like, let's work together. And so we're working together on it now. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, we've been working on it for years now. It's a tough one because people have a lot of, uh, mixed feelings about lobbyists they have a lot of you know there's a lot of concern about like is this legitimate is you know i don't why would i fund lobbyists they're the bad guys um so it's been a very interesting experiment um but we actually just with evan launched another campaign about a month ago uh for the new york good samaritan law um, or the education of the, the New York Good Samaritan law. Um, and I think we're going to have our first successful campaign. So it's been kind of a very interesting journey and taught me a lot about people and how to educate people and how to talk to people about an idea and how people feel about the government. Um, but I still think that there's just, we're just one of a million, maybe not a million, but a thousand companies and ideas like this, where people are saying, how do we bring democracy into the new age? How do we bring government into this, you know, the 21st century? And I think that's just a really exciting space to be in because I think, you know, again, one place we see no innovation is the government. And so now all of a sudden there's these money, this, you know, there's money and there's interest and there's ideas and there's people all kind of talking about government 2.0. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And um, it's part of what you were saying in terms of people having some discomfort with it and otherwise, I think there's a lot of mystery in government to people that have no involvement. And the term lobbying is this label that's gotten this terrible name. And I agree with you. It'd be awesome if it didn't exist, but there, there can be lobbyists working on good causes. Um, so I, I'm sure a lot of what you're working on is education in a way for your users. Yeah. yeah and, and it's interesting too, because I think we're even having a conversation right now as a country, which to your point of like, there's a lot of confusion and also uncertainty about what the government like what's the purpose of the government and you know in one way there's so much right now about like we want people to vote and we want people to be involved and we want people to you know be part of the process and read the news and you know be kind of like a knowledgeable consumer of your own government but ironically one of the you know the biggest cells of a representative democracy is that you 
don't need to be plugged in. Like the whole point is we're really like the whole idea behind it is like you go pick someone to represent you. And then as long as things are going well, you don't have to get involved. So it's kind of, it's the same thing with the lobbyist. It's like, you know, if I told you, like, do you think you should be able to have some, you know, if you work a job and, you know, you don't have the time, do you think you should be able to have somebody who goes and advocates for you? Most people would probably say like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I, you know, I want to be able to talk to my legislators. But then, you know, of course, if I say like, oh, do you think a giant pharmaceutical company should pour $500 million into lobbying every year? Now, all of a sudden, that calculus is totally different. So there's all these messy questions with government where, you know, I think we're all just trying to figure out like, how does this work? How's it supposed to work? How do we want it to work? And uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly don't have answers for all those questions, but it makes it an interesting place to play in. I really like what you said about bringing government into the 21st century and how you guys are sort of a piece of that puzzle that a lot of people are working on. I mean, in general, it, it can be hard, you know, on the, the public policy side, on the government side to drag our country into the new age. And, um, you know, we've seen it maybe in our infrastructure as well. Um, but the idea of sort of increasing the use of technology and, you know, making it more accessible to people in this day and age is really exciting. Yeah, I think so too. And and I'm very, there's certainly days I like probably many people in this country, there's certainly days where I'm fearful for the future or very nervous about like how things are going. I think regardless of which side of the political aisle you're on, but there is also a lot to be hopeful about. And I will say being on the, like I said, actually seeing some of the you know sausage being made and watching good people who are trying to run for office and watching the legislation happen and watching all these outside organizations who are all trying to think about this differently there are definitely i think more days than not where i'm hopeful for what's to come so yeah hopefully that doesn't change <laughs> i appreciate that and um i'm sure there's some people listening wondering how do you sort of keep your how do you keep the crowd apprised of where their dollars are going and um, what's the transparency like around them getting a real understanding of what happened to those dollars they put in? Yeah, so specifically with crowd lobby, and that's I assume what your question is. Um, so the idea here is, that it's funny because the channels are actually already there. Like lobbyists actually work in, traditionally in this way, which is like they're acting, but they're constantly communicating with a client and then, you know, they're asking the client, like, which direction do you think I should go? They're giving them a lot of updates, like, here's what legislators are saying, here's where these bills are. So it's funny because lobbyists are actually already very used to having to report back. The difference is, like we've talked about, it's just typically, you know, someone at a big corporation who's their point person. So what we want to do is change the point person and make it the crowd of funders. So, you know, for this campaign that we're about to launch, the lobbyists will actually be doing a lot of that same communication. So they'll be at, you know, giving updates and telling you where the bill is and where is it headed next. And, you know, if we want to affect change, here's the people sitting on the committee and, you know, here's the people we think are going to say no. And here's the people we think we're going to say yes. And all these details that you or I would never have the time to research because it's not our job. And, you know, who has time to follow a bill that closely. But again, instead of going to like one corporate employee, it'll be going to the whole crowd of supporters. So that's, to me, the most exciting part of all of this, because even in the very beginning, when I watched lobbyists, I kept thinking like, it's so ironic because 
they have such a bad reputation, rightfully so. But the service is actually, it's like, in some ways, it's like the solution to everything that, you know, everybody's always complaining about. It's like, they tell you exactly what's happening in the government. They tell you the internal politics of like, what's really happening. They tell you what actually needs to happen in order for legislation to pass. So it's like all these things that I actually think are extremely useful. It's just like, we never see it. And so the hope is to really, and in the beginning, just because, you know, it's fledgling and we're still trying to figure out exactly how it works, a lot of it's going to be pretty manual. So it's going to be like email updates and, you know, messaging updates and things like that. But what we really would like to eventually build it into is like a full platform where, you know, the lobbyists can send videos and voice recordings and you can talk with the lobbyists and you can vote on, you know, what the lobbyist does and here's the options. So I think there's like so many exciting ways that we can get people involved in this process but you know we're just still experimenting now but the purpose is as much transparency as possible i can imagine that future where you do have that full platform and they're really the lobbyist is going to be able to pull data out of that that's going to help them do their job better um you know in the short term potentially i mean be a good problem to have if it seemed like there were too many cooks in the kitchen if you will like in terms of feedback going back and forth it's it's like a if you could really get there and you could get people organized around a certain topic there's like so much that you could do with that organized group of interested donors so i was curious um how the financial model works a little bit for you guys are, are you taking some money out so that you guys can actually invest in the future into that platform um so honestly now no um it's fully volunteer we're volunteer staff uh we take I think it's 3% just for the credit card processing fees. So we're not actively paying for the campaigns. Um, but right now it's every dollar that give that's get, get that gets given to the campaigns goes directly to the lobbying effort. Um, now, eventually, if you know, if it looks like we can really get it up off the ground and we're starting to have multiple campaigns, we'd probably have a model similar to a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter where we take a nominal percentage at the top just so that we can keep operating as a company because eventually, hopefully, it would need some full-time employees. Um, but yeah, right now it's fully volunteer and 100% of the dollars go directly to the lobbying effort. That's great. And uh, I believe you have a couple of uh, active campaigns. Is that correct? Um, so we just decided to throw everything behind the one right now. Um, we oh, the, have good, the Good Samaritan Law, right? Mm -hmm. In New York. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we have um, another one in the pipeline and there's a couple already queued up for the spring. Um, but just because in the past we've had an issue where like if we're focusing on too many things, it doesn't work. So we really just want to see this one through to the end. And I'm really excited because now we actually get to test all the things that we've been talking about. So like testing the lobbyists, talking to the crowd and testing like what kind of things does the crowd want to hear about and how often do they want to hear from the lobbyists? And so, um, yeah, this is going to be like a really cool test test case. So I know that the answer to this might be different now than what it will be in the future, but if I'm Joe Citizen and there's a, a concept or a issue that I want to create a crowd lobby campaign for, you know, what do I do? So the first step is to just go to the website. Um, there's a submit a campaign option and you can give us the basics. Um, again, you're absolutely right in the fact that right now it's different than what it hopefully eventually will be. Um, right now it's pretty manual. Uh, again, we, we reach out to anybody who shows interest. We'll talk with them. Um, we volunteer a lot of our time. So we'll say like, you know, we can help you draft it. We can help you do research. We can help you figure out how you want to frame it. 
Um, so honestly, like I said, you work pretty manually with our team right now. Um, eventually, like I said, with a lot of the other crowdfunding platforms, it's pretty automated. So they have certain things where, you know, they have certain guards and they make sure that there's not certain language included or, you know, that it meets certain requirements, but then they get it up pretty quickly and it's all automated. Um, so eventually we'd love to do that, but given how sensitive it is right now and how small it is, we pretty much personally handle every campaign. That makes sense. Um, in, in the future, you know, in this theoretical future where it has grown and there are a variety of campaigns going on, do you envision the organization itself having, you know, sort of any partisanship or any, uh, you know, are you going to block things that the sort of the morality of the staff doesn't agree with, but isn't necessarily like a bad thing? Yeah. So we talked about this a lot. Um, no, uh, we have two qualifications that every campaign has to meet. So one, we have like a basic discrimination policy. It's pretty standard. It's like the same as everywhere else. You can't have a hateful campaign. You can't have a campaign that's like directed at a certain person or at a certain like body of people. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, what I like to think of like, that's the bottom line. Um, you know, you hope you don't have to deal with a lot of that, but we do have a policy for that. Um, beyond that, our only other qualification is that it's a real legislative fix. So you can't have a campaign for world peace because even though everybody may want world peace, we nobody knows what that means. And like we have probably a hundred different ideas of how you would get there. Um, so you have to have a specific legislative goal. But other than that, we're open to anything. So conservative, liberal, moderate, anything in between. Um, we talked at length about this in the beginning. Um, I obviously have my own personal beliefs. The other members of the staff have their own personal beliefs, but we really founded this company because we believed in the idea. Like we believed in the idea that if enough people in this country believe in something and they wanna put their money behind it, they should have the option to hire a lobbyist just like a corporation would and go be represented in the halls of government. So. I already had to like come to terms with the fact that there may be campaigns that I personally disagree with, but I believe very deeply in the bigger ideal of what the company is trying to achieve. And so in that regard, I really wanted it to not be my personal opinions. I didn't want the company to have a partisan slant. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I mean, to answer your question, that was the much longer answer. But the short answer is no, there's no partisan slant. We'll take anything as long as it meets those two criteria. Um, and yes, that's that's with me being fully aware of the fact that if it were to succeed, it's almost like the, the I would know it would have succeeded if we have enough campaigns where there's a certain percentage of them that I inherently disagree with. <laughs> yeah, so. right. That would be a good problem to have most yeah. likely. And um, I hope for that for the platform's future. I love the concept of giving people, you know, more power and involvement in the process and really an opportunity. And I hope that the public's able to gain an understanding of it the same way that they have with things like Kickstarter and otherwise. Um, you know, obviously we mentioned the government angle is, is always a tough one to just sell anything on. So, uh, but I, I'm confident and hopeful in your future. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit more about Antrim Grace Solutions. Yeah, sure. Um, so Antrim Grace 
or AGS, as we say, is again, was kind of born out of necessity. Uh, so we really wanted to work on crowd lobby and believe very deeply in it, but we uh, also recognized we had to pay our bills and feed ourselves. Um, so myself and my business partner, Samantha, um, Samantha Biggio, we created Antrim Gray Solutions as a, uh, it's kind of, I don't even want to say it's morphed. It's turned into what it is today. We had to kind of go through a couple of years to figure out what that looked like. Um, but we now consider ourselves a boutique management and political consulting firm. So what I like to always say is if you're a socially minded organization, if you're a politically minded organization, or if you're a government, like public policy minded organization, we do all the back end so you can go change the world. Um, and that looks a little bit different for every client, but a lot of it is we're basically like fractional administrative staff. So, you know, for some clients, that means we handle their board and we handle their meetings and we make sure that the trains are running on time, figuratively speaking, there's no actual trains. Um, but yeah, it's basically, and then for other clients, it means that we may put together content for them. We do legislative research, you know, we help them draft their legislative agenda. Um, but yeah, it's basically if sometimes some of our clients are boards, some of our clients are individuals, but it's typically someone who has some vision or some goal and like wants to see the world like changed for better, but they don't necessarily have a full staff or the time to like handle everything on the back end. And so we'll do a lot of the back end stuff for them. Um, and yeah, it's been very interesting. We get to work with a lot of really cool clients who whose missions I really believe in. And, you know, I like to think we're bolstering their efforts. Maybe you already have them, but I'm curious if you could describe an ideal client or some type of organization that you'd love to work with. Um, so I can really like sugarcoat for some clients here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, my ideal client, my ideal client, and, and I will say I do actually have some now that fit in this bucket. Um, my ideal client, I really like working on environmental projects and I really like working on good governance projects. Those are like personally near and dear to me. Um, so again, and, and like the, the actual, like, perfect client profile is again, someone who has a really strong vision, who's really passionate about what they're doing, um, but is also willing to seek control of some of the more, you know, mundane everyday tasks, uh, just because some people like have something and it's their baby and they have their nails like stuck in it. And that can be really hard to work with because, you know, it's really difficult to like detach them enough where you can be helpful. Um, but you also don't want somebody who's totally out to, you know, space and just says like, well, I don't, you know, I'm not involved and this isn't a top priority to me because that can also be very draining if you're like trying to run something for someone who really isn't making it a priority. So yeah, the, the client profile is again, someone who's very passionate and engaged, but not is willing to cede some of their authority to someone like us. Um, and yeah, issues, like I said, I, I, we only take this Antrim Grace, I can make, uh, like we only work on issues that me and my business partner and the staff agree with. Um, so for that one, we do have not a partisan slant, but like an ideological slant. Um, and so, yeah, so my ideal clients, like I said, are, are I love environmental clients, like good governance clients, animal welfare clients. Um, those are some of the ones that like personally, I love to work with. 
You mentioning good governance uh, brought me back to something that my friend Victor Nguyen Long said in uh, episode 10 of season one. Um, he basically, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everyone later about how they would fix the world. And one of his things was that he wishes everyone would get a good civics class and really feels that civics, an understanding of civics would empower people to be more involved and have a better understanding and be more engaged with public policy. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with this. I mean, again, I think it's a, it's a, it's a complicated question because it's, it's, I mean, no, it's not a complicated question. I do think people need more civics education. I think people need a better understanding of how our government works and why it was founded and its principles and everything else. So in that regard, it's a very simple question. The complicated part for me is, again, this question of does a understanding of government and an understanding of civics necessarily equate with involvement? And that's something where, again, I think we're like in a very interesting spot in the U.S. because right now everyone would answer like more involvement. We need people who are, you know, more involved. They vote more. They give more. They, you know, call their senators more. But again, realistically, if you really understand the system and the system is working well, which is important, and I would argue like giant asterisk, like right now it's not, but if it's really working well, involvement actually shouldn't be that important because like if it works well, you shouldn't have to call your congressperson. Maybe you call them to like voice your opinion on this issue or that issue, but like general outrage isn't, you know, isn't necessary all the time. So again, I think there's, absolutely a need for civics education. I think that that's like, like very sad in this country. And I oftentimes go abroad and people have better understandings of how our government functions than some of the people I meet here. But again, I do think that we have to kind of question this link between understanding and involvement because getting involved in government is absolutely a great thing and you should always voice your opinion. But in a well-oiled machine and like in a well-working government, you don't actually need people like making government a part-time job. And I think that's, you know, caused a lot of anxiety for a lot of young people too, because we're like, I have to be reading the news and I have to be politically involved and I have to be following what's going on. And it's like, well, realistically right now you may need to, but if it really worked well, you know, the hope would actually be that the government would serve you, which is the whole purpose. And then you wouldn't have to like be angry at it all the time. So, so I don't know. I think, you know, again, it's kind of, it's a weighted question because of that, but yes, yeah, civics education hands down needs to be better in this country. Yeah. I think that's a good perspective, you know, getting a, a better understanding doesn't necessarily mean more involvement. And if the system's working, you shouldn't have to have your hands in the too deep. So uh, hopefully we'll get to a place where that's the case. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Are there any stories of when you really saw how your work could affect change directly, like someone coming up to you or some something happening in the news? Yeah, so I've had this happen many times. Um, and I'll speak to a couple of specifics in a second. But the interesting thing for me has been, so I've worked in state politics pretty extensively over the last couple of years. And it's funny because in the beginning, if 
I, I have to, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I have to admit in the beginning, I was very much like I had come out of federal politics and I was very much of the mind of like, if you're not working in federal politics, it doesn't matter. And now I'm like so embarrassed by that opinion because so much legislating and so much of what's important to everyday Americans happens on the local and the state level. And now I'm like deeply aware of that, but I will say there were many years where, you know, if you had said like, oh, you're going to only stay in state politics, I would have been like, Ugh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and so I think over the years that has come home over and over and over again, because, and, and a lot of people probably have experienced this on the federal level, it can feel like you're talking you know, to no one. It's like, you can call your congressperson, you're like one of several thousand people who have done so. You can give to a federal campaign, you know, you're one of millions of people that have done so. On the state level, like one person can make a difference. And like a couple of people can make a huge difference. And so that has been something that I've seen over and over again over the last couple of years and in my career. And sometimes it's me, sometimes it's other people. But that has like really that has been impressed upon me of like if you really want to kind of change your little corner of the world or your like pretty big corner of the world, state and local politics are unbelievable places to do so. Because a lot of, you know, I mean, Virginia specifically is like where I'm working right now or where I am right now. Virginia has a legislature that three, takes three months every year. That's it. And they do like 2000 to 3000 bills. And most of the bills might have one person who comes and testifies on behalf of that bill. And so I've sat in many, many rooms where a bill will come up, it looks like it's gonna die. And then one person gets up and tells like a heartfelt story and says like, this is how this affects my life. And the bill will make it through. And so, and like I said, on a personal note, you know, you're asking like, how has my, I've fortunately been on the side of that as well where like we've championed certain bills or we've championed certain outcomes and i think at least in part because of our decisions we've actually seen that come to fruition um but yeah it's just it's made me aware of like by by being a little bit more real realistic i think and and focusing locally and statewide you can actually have a much more outsized impact. And uh, yeah, like I said, I've been fortunate enough to be part of several, some environmental pushes, some education pushes, some campaign finance reform pushes over the last couple of years that have been really cool to be part of. Cause you know, you it, even just in the state like Virginia you're affecting eight and a half million people. And that's, you know, not a small thing. That's a really good point. And I think a lot of people don't realize how effective you can be on those levels. And myself working mostly in drug policy reform, especially on cannabis, um, we've seen in cannabis how state changes are pushing us further at the federal level. Um, so each incremental impact can have an effect. Yes, absolutely. So. And to your point, if you can prove a model out over and over again on the state level, it's impossible for the feds to then ignore it. And yeah, yeah. And with cannabis, you're absolutely seeing that. It's like the tide is turning and it's just like the, the federal government can't continue to ignore it. Any experiences from your childhood that showed you the importance of giving back, you know, whether that was you doing the giving or receiving? It's funny. I thought about this question a lot and I'm embarrassed to say there's not like a, I, I love when people have a story where they're like, oh, when I was seven, you know, and I don't have one of those stories. 
um, my mother was extremely service oriented. Uh, so the entire time we were growing up, it was very, you know, before we had our Thanksgiving dinner, we like served Thanksgiving dinner to others before, you know, all, all of that. And so I think there was like bred into me from a very, very young age was this idea of like, you give to others before you care for yourself. And I've had to go to lots of therapy for that. And I care for myself too now. Um, but I'm just kidding. But, uh, yeah, but I think, you know, I think in large part because of her, it was just like a constant, it, it was just a constant aspect of just like, you have to care for others and there's nothing more important that you can do than like care, you know, care for your neighbor and care for the people around you. And for whatever reason, and this it's like I said, your question, like really, I, I was like going through this earlier. At some point there must've been a link between like helping others and government being the way to do that. And that link, interestingly enough, I don't actually know where the link is. But at some point, that was the link for me. And I've always said to people, you know, like I said to you earlier, the U.S. government is the largest company that's ever existed. And it also happens to be like probably one of the largest, if not the largest social program that's ever existed in the you know history of humanity. And so, you know, in the same way that you can change one law in Virginia and affect eight and a half million people, you can change one law in the federal system and affect, you know, what is it, 350 or 400 million people. And so I think there was something about government that was so far reaching that, you know, if you really wanted to go into service, it just seemed like the obvious choice for me. But again, like where that connection is, I, you know, I'll get back to you if I eventually narrow in on it. But I think, like I said, it was, it was definitely my mom's service orientation that I think kind of set me down on this path. Well, clearly helping people was ingrained in you. And at some point you made that connection to government and the rest is history. Yes. So throughout that process and throughout your career, has there been anyone in particular that you've considered a mentor? So for a lack of sounding weird or, or at risk of sounding a little weird, my husband is probably one of my biggest mentors. Um, he was a mentor to me actually long before we were buried. Um, he's also an entrepreneur and interestingly enough, not involved in government at all. Um, but he's always been very critical. I really appreciate mentors who really make you question like, why are you doing this and what's the purpose and what are you hoping to achieve? And even if it, you know, it failed, would you still do it? Um, so yeah, he was one of like, it continues to be one of my strongest mentors. Um, I also like to think of my clients as mentors a lot of the time. Um, I'm in kind of a unique position where a lot of my clients are older and much more seasoned than I am. Um, so I learn a lot from them and sometimes it's much to my frustration and we have very different views on things. Um, but I, you know, I think I learn from them all the time and I'm learning from my interactions from them. Um, so yeah, so I, I you know, again, I, I kind of, I like to take the tactic of you can learn a little bit from everyone. So in that regard, everyone in my life is the mentor, but those are probably the two categories where I would say like more, you know, more, most active mentoring. Well, it, it's great that you're open-minded you know, to learning from as many people as you can. I find that to be a really important characteristic and people that create impact and uh, you know, ability to learn for their entire lives and know that there's never a point at which they know everything. And 
Um, you know, additionally, I don't think it's weird that your partner is your mentor. I think the best partners are the ones that you can lean on for everything and, and learn from. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I will say it is very nice. I appreciate having someone who, you know, obviously is personally there for me, but it's nice to also be able to bring work home and be like, I need to brainstorm this or I need you to push me or I need you to, you know, ask the tough questions on this. And so, you know, I, I like to think I do the same for him, but he definitely acts as a mentor in that regard to me. Speaking of you guys, I was curious to learn a little bit more about what RV is life is like and what sort of led you to that path. Yeah, um, sure. So uh, we probably had a similar, I don't want to say similar experience to everyone, but I think a lot of people had kind of like a mid COVID like reassessment of your whole life. Um, so we were living in Richmond, Virginia at the time, and we just decided we didn't want to live in Richmond, Virginia anymore. Um, not that I have anything against Richmond, Virginia. I still spend a ton of time there and love it, but we just didn't want to live there. And so we sold our house on a whim and we didn't know what was next, but we just knew we didn't want to live in that house anymore. And so we floated around in parents' houses for a couple of weeks. And then someone in our network was selling an old used RV and I walked up to my husband at two in the morning and was like, do you want to buy this RV? And he was like, yes. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And yeah, three days later, we were on a plane to Utah and we picked up the RV and I told him at the time, I said, we're going to do 30 days and just like see the country. I was like, let's just drive around for 30 days, see the country, and then we'll sell the RV again. And I now realize how naive that statement was. But at the time I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've driven across the country in a week, like 30 days, we'll just do the whole loop. And uh, yeah, then 30 days became 60 days, became six months. And now we actually, we've been on the road for about a year and we actually just well, we haven't yet, but we're about to put our old RV on the market and we just bought a new one. Um, so now I think we're like officially RV people. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's been an amazing experience. I have to admit, we're extremely fortunate. We kind of got to, uh, COVID obviously was so intense for so many different reasons. And it was also really interesting because we were traveling, but we were still extremely isolated. So like we never, we weren't interacting with people. We, you know, we cooked every night in the RV, but we were still seeing new things. And so it was like an amazing experience. And we also got to do some really cool things because no one could, no one else could travel. So we were like in national parks by ourselves and, you know, all these crazy things. And uh, yeah, it just made me, it, it's, made me realize I need a lot less space than I thought. We live in about 300 square feet. We have two dogs and a cat and they live in the RV with us. Um, and so we love like being in our tiny little house. And I don't think I could go back to like a, the traditional house at this point. Um, but it's also just shown me how incredible the U.S. is. Uh, I was definitely one of those people. I love traveling internationally. I was always trying to get out of the U.S. And now I have like a list, a long, super long laundry list of all the places I want to go in the U.S. And it's just like, I, I mean, you could drive around the U.S. for 20 years and still not see all of it. And, you know, we've been to deserts out west. We went to sand dunes. We went to lakes. We went to the ocean. I mean, it's just like this country is amazing and it's so varied and it's so big. And, you know, there's so many spots where you can just drive for hundreds of miles and not see a person. And so it's definitely given me, you know, I, I think I already always had an interesting perspective on like 
the government because it was like my first true love. And so I always had like kind of a very, uh, I was always very impressed by the US government, but I think now I have also that same like deep level of impress. I don't know if you can hear the cat screaming at me for dinner. Um, I have the same just like love for our actual physical country. And so I, I, it's been an amazing experience and, uh, it's probably not for everyone, but yeah, we love it. Absolutely love it. Well, congrats on becoming RV people and (laughs) the upgrade that's coming. And, uh, it's really cool to hear about the new perspective it gave you on the actual country itself. Um, yeah, I've done a fair amount of us travel, but certainly nothing like driving around the country in an RV and, um, I look forward to experiencing more of it at some point, but even when I do go to various places, it's, it's incredible how many different options there are here. And, um, as great as it is to travel internationally, uh, pretty much everything you could ever need. Well, and it's funny too, because it's, I I think there's like one of the reasons that the United States could become as powerful as it is is because in language, we're also uniform. And so there's kind of this idea, and it's true that, you know, in Europe, you can drive 30 miles and the people are totally different. The culture is totally different. Everything changes here. You know, you can drive 3000 miles and we all still speak the same language. The culture is sort of the same, but there's still so much nuance. And I think that was what I had missed. And it was kind of, you know, we spent six weeks in New Mexico and then we spent, you know, six weeks in Florida. And that's like, two totally different worlds. And then, you know, we went and spent six weeks in Maine and like, it's just like, yes, we're all so similar, which can be a really beautiful thing, but there are, there is really nuance from location to location. And I think that's what we've really come to enjoy. And uh, I'm honestly just excited to see a lot more of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that I tend to appreciate when I'm on like some sort of whirlwind travel where I'm going all over the country for business and I'm in South Carolina one day and then I'm in LA the next day and it's like yeah there's a lot of similarities but wow it's different too yes so uh, you started a blog right when you started this trip yeah um so our blog is called in search of bliss and we it was kind of interesting because we were like what do we really it's just for fun and so we were like what do we want to you know do and what do we want to write about and we kind of categorized it into just our musings. So as we traveled the country, we just like talked about, you know, whatever we were feeling. It was, a, like I said, very interesting journey. And so a lot of things came up and we just kind of like wrote about them. Um, and then the other half is kind of a more traditional travel blog. And so I just, I feel like there's so many parts of the country, especially for whatever reason in New Mexico, I was very, uh, inspired because it was like a part of the country that I never heard about and nobody had ever said like you gotta go to New Mexico but then I went and I was like you gotta go to New Mexico and so I was like I want to do some travel blogs for some of the you know the the roads less traveled so that people actually can kind of you know think about some like parts of the country that maybe otherwise wouldn't think about. That's that's really cool I appreciate that you're sharing those learnings with people I think that'll go a long way and All right, so we've hit the part of the show where you get to ask me a question or questions. Um, So feel free to fire away. Okay, so I have two questions. The one is relevant, of course, which is what was the thing that made you want to do this podcast, which I'm sure you've gotten a hundred times, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I've I've gotten it before, but not on the podcast. So um, really, 
I've always been into broadcast in general and the idea of like doing voiceover art. I mean, I wanted to be a voiceover artist when I saw Mrs. Doubtfire as a kid. And at the beginning, Robin Williams is doing voices. Um, so that led me to eventually do voiceover classes. And then um, wow. I did play-by-play -play for hockey games in college for junior teams. Um, I've done a little bit of that recently as well. And um, so for better or worse, I like listening to myself talk <laughs> or <laughs> hearing myself, you know. Uh, and I thought, what's a good way to channel creative energy? I've been having a fair amount of frustration in my film career and dealing with the gatekeepers of Hollywood. And I thought a podcast would be an opportunity to use my creative energy with something I can immediately put out and not have to deal with gatekeepers on. So that was one aspect of it. And so as podcasts have become more and more popular, it's something that I've always been thinking about. What am I, I want to do a podcast. I don't know what to do. And then, you know, one day I just sat down and was trying to decide what am I going to do? And uh, every day I talk to amazing people. And I'm fortunate in that, you know, that I've, I've built a great network and that great people often come to me. And um, I thought, well, here's a good way to use my time and my creativity is to showcase people that are doing incredible things to change the world. And I feel that my kind of role in life is to build up a great sort of tribe of people doing incredible things and help them do them however I can. And I saw this as a way to uh, give those people some spotlight because many of those people often don't put it out there. And um, so I, I saw it as a chance to help these people inspire others and also try to work on myself personally and establishing my voice and establishing my thought processes around things. And um, all of that came together. And for me, when I'm excited about a project, it's very easy to work on. And this one, once I sort of had the idea and the concept I was just like I'm gonna start putting this in my calendar make sure I actually do it and just started recording good for you that's cool yeah <laughs> I will you. say it's a it's an intimidating medium because not if you're in it's an intimidating medium just because it's it, it's it sounds weird because you just think like you're just talking but there is like when you're suddenly recording and you're, you know, so I, I do uh, commend you on, I, it sounds like you've done quite a bit, quite a few episodes. And so it's kind of an intimidating medium to just jump into, but that's cool. Thank you. And then my second question, which has nothing to do with this. And I love to ask people this question is if money was no, had no relevance, no concern, I don't know, either you have so much of it that it doesn't matter or just like poof, money doesn't matter what would you either change about your life or like, what would you do? I actually ask this of people relatively frequently when I meet them. Very similarly, I love to know kind of what would you want to spend your time doing? And that said, I never really have thought that deeply on my answer to the question, despite the fact that I ask people but I'm also the type that I'm always trying to manifest that in my own life. And I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to do that quite a bit. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily do exactly what I'm doing if money didn't matter, but it would be helping creative, thoughtful people execute and share what they're working on in some way or another. So, you know, right now as kind of a serial entrepreneur, I'm often finding people that are really good at something and helping them figure out the best way to bring that to the world or to monetize it or, or otherwise. So really just helping people make the most out of themselves and their lives and getting my own fulfillment out of that and my own growth out of that. 
good for you. Yeah, I will say most the I like to ask people that question. And as I'm sure as somebody who also asked that question, the sad one is when people have like a giant deviation from their actual life and what they respond. So it's the biggest compliment to you that your life is pretty close to it. So I'm, I'm, you know, had a lot of fortune to be where I am and have the opportunities that I've had. Um, but what you're saying, you know, in terms of someone, let's say you're asking an accountant and they're like, I want to be in a Broadway show, then yeah, it does make you a little sad. And I, you know, if you'd asked me this earlier in life, I would have said playing or working in the NHL. And I certainly, I love hockey. You can see behind me. Um, and there's certainly some hockey and a lot of hockey involved in my ideal life, but, uh, it's not, it's not the biggest part of the answer these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing. It does change. I just always liked it. I, it, it does always surprise me how many people to your point are like CPAs and say they want to be on Broadway. And then you're like, why don't you just go do it? And it's funny how sometimes when people will look at me and be like, you know, not like completely, like they've never thought about it, but the answers sometimes are like not very satisfactory to me. And I'm like, just go do it. So, yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes, obviously responsibilities get in the way and I, for better or worse, definitely try to help people find sort of that middle ground between that. So let's say that you are that CPA that wants to be on Broadway. Are there, and maybe you're not pursuing it at all at this moment, are there acting classes or are there local shows that you can be in in the meantime, the same way as if I meet someone that's in a non-entrepreneurial role and they have a business idea. It's like, Hey, could you start some small version of a proof of concept on the side? And, you know, even for instance, with you, if crowd lobby took over your everyday um, away from your consulting, you know, and you, like it started, it could be something that started as a side project and slowly grew and grew and allowed you to spend more of your time on it. Um, and I think that is often the case with a lot of successful entrepreneurs and, and people in nonprofits as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think people sometimes view it as like a either or, like they either have to give up everything and try it or do nothing. And I agree with you. There's a, a giant middle ground. Yeah, there's incremental options. So uh, hopefully someone listening takes that to heart and starts so start incrementally <laughs> yeah, trying their thing. Um, it's always fun to see people taking that leap and, um, you know, sometimes you might start taking that leap and realize that it isn't what you thought it was. And then you go another direction. So I briefly mentioned earlier, this question that I've been asking all my guests, and it's been really interesting to see both the similarities and differences in the answers. Um, the question is if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Yeah, so this is a super interesting question. And it's also one of those ones where I think if you ask me probably every day, my answer might change a little bit or a lot bit. Um, I have two answers, as you probably told, can figure out through the interview. I always have more than one answer to everything, but um, I have two things. So the first thing that came to mind is a very practical one, which was if I could fix anything, or, and it's kind of interesting because you could have an argument about whether or not it's even a problem, but in my mind it is. Um, if I could snap my fingers and change anything, I would probably outlaw factory farming, um, which is like very specific, but probably has a lot to do with all the reading I've been doing recently. But to me, it's like just this giant black hole, especially in the US that I think is eventually going to go international. And I think it's something that 
to your question about like how would it reverberate i think it reverberates in everything i think it reverberates in our social conscious i think it reverberates in the health of like our environment i think it reverberates in the health of our actual like the people in this country um so in a very like simple like if i could just like fix something that would be the very straightforward one for me um in a more like theoretical way I would love to see, and this one was interesting because I was like, oh, I don't even know how this would reverberate, but I would love to see honesty be more socially acceptable. So like, again, I think saying like, I wish everyone was honest hundred percent of the time, I think it's kind of a, it's like a, I don't even know how that would affect things. But I think the big thing is in our current culture, we claim to appreciate honesty but like very few parts of our actual society are set up for honesty so like social media you're not really incentivized to be completely honest with your life in social settings if you just walk around and tell everybody exactly how you feel and you're completely straightforward again not really incentivized you're just gonna end up being like that rude friend same thing in personal. I've been there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm working, I'm working on getting there. Um, same thing in personal relationships, same thing in the professional space. I mean, we constantly talk about how we want honest employees, but you know, if your employees come up to you and say like, Oh, I think you're doing a terrible job, or I think this is wrong. You, that's not really acceptable in a professional setting. So I, I found there's this really interesting dichotomy where almost everyone will tell you like, Oh, it's super important to be honest. But when you really start looking at every facet of our society, there's very few places where we actually accept people being completely honest. And so again, I don't, it, it's kind of like one step removed. It's not, I wish everyone was honest hundred percent of the time. Cause I think that would have a lot of unintended consequences that would be kind of weird, but I think having social structures where honesty was more valued would really change things because I think work cultures would change. I think personal relationships would change. I think social media would change. There would be so many facets of our world that all of a sudden, all this honesty that people would have would affect everything in different ways. And I think that would be really interesting and a good thing. Definitely. I I really, really like that answer. And I think social media is a good example of where that's the case. Um, you know, recently, um, unfortunately, I don't remember the source, but maybe I can add it later. Uh, I was reading something about um, the bias that's created via social media because 80% of the content is created by 10 to 20% of the users. And therefore, people think, because I'm seeing this so much on social media, this must be what everyone thinks. And in this article I was reading, they were talking about um, a survey that was done in a small town. And basically the survey was asked in such a way, what do you think the crowd thinks about this? And then what do you think? And it was always the, the what do you thinks were generally 80% similar, but the 20% was the answer that they said everyone else said. Yeah. If that makes sense. That so That doesn't surprise me. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, it's just, it's, it's a weird system because it's like, if, and I struggled with this, I actually recently just got off social media because I finally just like decided it was more bad than good, but it was so interesting because to your point, I kind of kept wrestling with it. And I was like, desperately trying to figure out how to be honest on social media, but exactly. There's no, there really isn't like you're not incentivized to that. If I got on social media every day and was like, Hey, I'm 
in my pajamas working again for eight hours. Here's a picture of my lunch. No one would follow me because it would just be like, why, why would I follow this crazy lady who works every day and chills with her cat? But it's like, so then, but then it's like, so then do you be dishonest? Do you over, so it's just, it's this really complicated question. And again, I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not demonizing anyone because it's like very, I don't even know what the right answer is. But yeah, there's just so many aspects of our lives where if you really just came out and said like, this is what my life looks like, or this is how I'm feeling, or this is what I think, you're really not incentivized to do that. And I just think when you start to, and I've been on like a, my husband always says it's, it's radical transparency. I'm on a journey to have like radical honesty in every aspect of my life. And it's really uncomfortable. Like if you had asked me a couple of years ago, like, oh, are you an honest person? I, without thinking would have been like, absolutely. But then when you really start digging into every aspect of your life and being like, I'm going to start telling my friends how I actually feel. And I'm going to start telling my partner how I actually feel. And I'm going to start being honest to my clients hundred percent of the time. It's very uncomfortable. And so I, you know, again, now I, now I would probably say like, well, I'm, I'm trying to be honest all the time, but it's only because I've just now realized how much like passively dishonest most of our society is. So. Yeah, that that's really true. And I do think that would have positive reverberations and hopefully we can start to attain a more and more honest society. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I think there's a lot of people, there's a lot of things that I think are very aggressively changing with like younger people and with the next couple of generations. So I'm very curious to see what happens with all of it. Well, I hope our listeners are as inspired as I've been by your story and the work that you've been doing. I think Crowd Lobby has the chance to really change the way that our government is working here. And um, regardless, I know that your efforts are moving us in the right direction. And I certainly appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, people can obviously go to crowdlobby.com and support campaigns. Is there any other way that people can support your work? Um, I mean, going, if you're interested specifically in crowd lobby, like you said, go to the website, support a campaign or talk to us, reach out to me and like, tell me about a campaign you're interested in uh, starting. Um, on a broader issue, just get involved in your state government. Um, it's not for me personally, but it's just, again, it's like a giant gap. Nobody I know gets involved in state government and the few people that I do enact enormous change. So that would be like my, my second tier, which is like not for me personally, but if you really are interested in getting involved, pick an issue, find a group, or just reach out to legislators and just start. Um, I think you'd be amazed at how influential you can be on a state and a local level. Awesome. Well, really appreciate that insight and everything that you've been sharing with us today. And I'm excited to, for this to get out to listeners. And I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah. Thanks, Jeffrey. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com. Thank you.